0: Well, this morning I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter one. Revelation one. We're actually going to read more than I've written there. I'm going to start from the from verse one. More than the bulletin says. But before we read it, I wanted to explain to you my motivation for choosing. This passage from John's revelation that was given to him by by the Lord, a revelation of Jesus Christ uh, over the last couple of months. If you're a regular here at First Presbyterian, you'll know that we have been studying the letter to the Hebrews. And uh, that book stresses the need for a beleaguered group of Christians who are ready to give up, to have a fresh vision of Jesus Christ, to see his glory on display and to not abandon their faith in him. So the writer of Hebrews is promoting Jesus and, and I mentioned this probably a month or so ago, but the book of Revelation has the same purpose. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ, not just from him to the churches, but a revelation of him a vision of him, numerous visions of him recorded of him to the persecuted churches of the day. Leon Morris, in his commentary, writes, to all outward appearance, their situation was hopeless. These first century Christians were a beleaguered bunch. But it is only as Christ is seen for what he really is that anything else can be seen for what it really is. So, for these persecuted ones, it was important that, first of all, the glory and the majesty of the risen Lord be made clear. And he makes a statement there that I find interesting. It is only as Christ is seen for what he really is that anything else can be seen for what it really is. To know what really is true reality, we have to understand the reality of Jesus Christ because as Philippians 2 tells us God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father this is where all of history is leading and it gives daily perspective about what matters and what does not eternally. What has eternal significance and what does not. That means just like the people of John's day, it is important that first of all, the glory and the majesty of the risen Lord be made clear for everyone here today so we can have perspective. Because our situation is not so much different than the situation of John's audience. Yes, we're separated by 2,000 years, but the similarities are uncanny. If you read chapters 2 and 3 of the Revelation, John addresses the seven churches of Asia Minor. And as you go through those paragraphs, you will see that they struggled with much of the same things that we struggle with. They struggled with losing their love and devotion for Jesus. They struggled with mounting persecution, with false teaching infiltrating the church, with sexual immorality even in the church, hypocrisy, apathy, mediocrity. It sounds all too familiar to our shame. And if you consider the circumstances in which they lived, they lived during the time of Domitian, the Emperor Domitian in the Roman Empire, who ruled over their part of the world. And and, and, and during his reign, there was persecution against Christians. Um, But I was reading a a book by Mark Breeden, Jesus' Revolutionary of Peace, and he sums up Domitian's reign quite nicely, uh, which is not so nice, but sounds very familiar to us in this way. Overall, the rule of Rome during Domitian's era was based, A, on its power and ability to crush any who posed a threat to it through violence. B, on the principles of gaining wealth. Its policy of Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, was not a peaceful principle, but one that allowed peace simply for the wealthy to become more wealthy and provide just enough for the ordinary citizens so that their disenchantment would not explode into full revolutionary action. So make the wealthy continue to get wealthier and keep everybody else just enough to be satisfied. And then C, on a successful propaganda that convinced ordinary people that Roman rule was divinely ordained and a good thing. It was a rule that invited synagogue and church members to throw their lot in with Rome's ways so that they might become wealthy. The last point was really all about emperor worship. The emperor imperial cult was, was stressed during this period. See, when it says that they wanted people to know that the, their, their emperor and the leaders were divinely ordained, they, they don't mean that they, that the Christian God divinely ordained Roman rule. They didn't believe in the Christian God. What they were saying was that the emperor himself was among the Roman gods and should be honored as such. People needed to confess that Caesar is Lord. And if Christians would just play along, then they would flourish. They could become wealthy and prominent in the empire. Doesn't that sound all too familiar to us? For the past several presidencies, we have seen people treating the president as if he were the Messiah. Or... The devil himself, one or the other, depending on which side of the aisle you're on. It's disturbing to hear people say that their hope depends on who is in office. If our guy's in office, we have hope. If their guy's in office, all hope is lost. I wonder if the reason so many of our politicians act like they are God's is because people treat them like they are gods, like they can save us, like our lives depend on every decision that they make. We need to turn our eyes from Washington to heaven, to the King of kings and Lord of lords, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, not just a temporal kingdom like the United States of America. Well, With these things in mind, thinking about the context and the need that we have, just like the people in John's day. We need to have a fresh vision of the glory and the majesty of the risen Christ. So let's turn our attention to Revelation chapter 1 with this in mind. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servant the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book... And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia, Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white Are the seven churches. This is God's word. Well, many of you have probably seen a recently released Gallup poll that's been in the news. For the first time in the 80 years that the Gallup poll has been recording these numbers, attendance at places of worship has dipped below 50% in the United States. When this poll was first taken in 1937, the number was at 73%. We're at 40-some-odd percent now. Yet, the same poll says that depending on how you ask the question, as many as 87% still believe in God. So that begs the question, is the church an outdated concept? Well, not according to the Bible, not according to the text in front of us this morning. The church is God's creation. And Jesus said that He is going to build His church and the gates of hell would not be able to prevail against it. The church is God's program. And if you are not into the church, you are not in line with what God is doing in the world. In John's day... When the church was struggling, we see God here giving a revelation of Jesus Christ to John for whom? It's for the church, for the church. It's the seven churches of Asia Minor, but there were more churches than that. Seven is an important number in the book of Revelation. It means the complete church. Yes, those seven churches, but if you read through that there, uh, the word applies through all time to, to all the church any church that worships Jesus. And when John sees his first vision of Jesus, what does he see? He sees Jesus walking among the golden lampstands, which, as we find out at the end of the chapter, that symbolizes the church. It's the church that Jesus is walking among. God wants these people to know that he has not abandoned the church in their time of difficulty. No, Jesus is walking with them. He is present with them. Yes, they were going through some terrible difficulties in life. The trend of society was going in a direction that was not in their favor. And Jesus is with them. And he speaks to them. Yes, he corrects them, as you see in chapters 2 and 3. But he also encourages them to endure to the end. The church is important, but the important question is, who is this one who walks among the churches and who has a message for the church? If this book is a revelation of Jesus Christ and we need to see the glory and majesty of Jesus, then what does this passage tell us of the glory and majesty of Jesus? Well, I just want to look at verses 17 through 18 today particularly zero in on those verses because this is where Jesus speaks and this is where Jesus reveals something of himself as he identifies himself and we just want to break down these words fear not I am the first and the last the living one I died and behold I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades we need to hear this today and remember who Jesus is first of all Jesus is the first and the last. That phrase is used by God three times in his word to and through the prophet Isaiah. Here's one example, Isaiah 44, 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God who is like me, Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. See, when Jesus reveals himself as the first and the last, or the Alpha and Omega, he is identifying himself as God. This designation refers to his eternal power and eternal existence. Richard of St. Victor paraphrased these words this way. I am the first and the last. First through creation, last through retribution. First because before me a God was not formed. Last because after me there shall not be another. First because all things are from me, Last, because all things are to me. From me, the beginning. To me, the end. First, because I am the cause of origin. Last, because I am the judge and the end. See, everything begins and ends with Jesus. This makes Jesus the ultimate priority in all creation and beyond. People today want to treat Jesus like he's just one of the many options out there in the realm of faith and spirituality. But that's not what Jesus claims for himself. He alone is the first and the last. Everyone who has ever lived will ultimately and finally have to give an account of themselves to him. He is the first and the last. President Harry Truman made the phrase, the buck stops here, famous it was a sign on his desk and there's many pictures of him with that and what it meant is that he would not pass the buck now that's an old poker term from the old west days when you know the poker games as you remember from all the westerns you've ever watched uh, uh, often people were accused of cheating and in order to to uh, uh, keep the cheating at bay uh, the dealer would move around so there was a marker in front of the dealer, and when you pat and, and, and in those days, sometimes it was a knife with a buckhorn handle, so a buck knife and so to pass the buck means that the respon- you 're passing the responsibility of being the dealer on to the next person, so it 's about passing on responsibility. Well, what Truman was saying is that i 'm not going to pass the buck; responsibility stops with me uh, when it reached his desk, it had reached the final spot because. He was the highest authority. Jesus is the ultimate authority whom everyone will eventually have to answer to. And you, so you cannot be apathetic about Jesus. He is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. From him and through him and to him are all things. That's the Jesus we worship. Well, the second thing he says here that He is the living one. Jesus is the living one. And this is just a a reference, an allusion to the covenant name for God, which is Yahweh. And Yahweh comes from the Hebrew verb to be. Uh, When God, Yahweh, reveals his covenant name to Moses at the burning bush, he says, my name is Yahweh. I am that I am. I will be what I will be. It refers to his having always existed. He's always been. He's the ever living one. There never was a time when he was not. He's eternal. And since Jesus is God, he is the living one. He's the living one. He's eternal. And this makes the next statement most shocking Behold, I died, or he died. But behold, he is alive forevermore. Now first, he died. The living one, the eternal one, the one who created life, who gives life, who is life, who is the ever-living one, died. How can that be? Charles Wesley, in his great hymn, And Can It Be, says, Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Who can explore his strange design?" It boggles the imagination that the eternal one, the one who is immortal, died. How is it possible that God could die? How is it possible that a sinless Jesus could die? See, the reason that you and I are subject to death, that we die, all of us will die one day unless the Lord returns before that, but the reason that we die is a result of the fall into sin when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, death entered in, and a curse. And so now we are subject to death and decay. God didn't create the world to include death. Sin is a result of mankind's, or death is a result of mankind's sin. Death is a penalty, a judicial sentence for our sins individually and collectively. Michael Horton says, No one really dies of natural causes but of the most horrific and unnatural cause. We die because we have rebelled against our Creator collectively and individually. But Jesus, the ever-living One, never sinned, nor did He have a sin nature. So how did He die? How How is it possible that He could die? Well, He died of His own choice. He laid down His life. Because he is the author of life. Jesus said in John 10, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I receive from my Father. So when you see Jesus on the cross, he's not dying because he had 39 lashes or that he was nailed to a cross and bleeding out. No, it says in Matthew 27, 50, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He yielded up his spirit. No one took his life from him. They couldn't. It was not possible for him to die unless he laid down his life. And that's exactly what he did. He died of his own volition as a sacrifice of atonement to die in the place of his people. He suffered the wrath of God for our sins on the cross, and then he died the death we deserved. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? But behold, it says in verse 18, Look at this, I am alive forevermore. Now in Acts 2.24, Peter says something interesting about Jesus. He says, this is his uh, sermon on the day of Pentecost, and he says uh, about Jesus, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It was not possible for him to be held by it. Why was it not possible for death to keep its grip on Jesus? It's because Jesus was sinless. We already mentioned that the reason that people die is because of their sin. We all are sinners and we die because we are sinners. We're subject to decay. But Jesus was sinless. He fulfilled all righteousness. All his life he never sinned in thought, word, or deed, or even in the intention of his heart. He didn't commit any sin, nor did he omit any duty at any moment of his life. He always loved the Father with his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he always loved his neighbor as himself. He had no sin, therefore death could not hold him. It had no right to hold him. The act of bearing the sins of his people on the cross was itself an act of obedience on his part. He did it because that was the Father's will. That was the mission that the Father had given him. He laid down his life, subjected himself to death, "...as an act of obedience to the Father on behalf of sinners such as we are. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son into the world that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So the grave had no right to Jesus, therefore he rose again. If he does not rise again, then that would indicate that sin and death had a claim on him. It did not. And his righteousness is vindicated by the resurrection." That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus did not rise from the grave, then our faith is in vain. It is futile. And we are to p- be pitied if we look to a Savior that is still in the grave because that would mean he was sinful somehow or another. He died, but behold, he is alive forevermore. Behold, look at it. Jesus is alive forevermore. He is a human and fully God, fully human and fully God God right now at the right hand of the Father, representing his people. And he's going to return again for his people. Do you know why the stone was rolled away? It was not so Jesus could get out of the tomb. You remember when he appears to the disciples in the room where the doors are locked, he comes through the door? He's got a glorified body. He's not like a ghost. He's, he's more solid than the door. It's like a lead, lead going through water, a lead pipe going through water. He could, he could have gone through the stone that was in front of the tomb. And probably he did. But it was rolled away so we could go in and see that he's not there anymore. That's why the stone was rolled away. He cooked, he ate, he was physical. His body was glorified. It was like, it'll, it was like the bodies of Christians will be like in the new heavens and new earth. So the stone was not rolled away so he could get out, but that we could get in and see that he had risen. Because the resurrection is of vital importance. If you look at the front of your bulletin, there we have the uh, larger catechism where it talks about Christ being resurrected, exalted in his resurrection. Christ was exalted in his resurrection in that, not having seen corruption in death, of which it was not possible for him to be held, he didn't see corruption because he was not sinful. And having the very same body in which he suffered with the essential properties thereof, but without mortality and other common infirmities belonging to this life, really united to his soul, he rose again from the dead the third day by his own power. And here's the important part. Whereby, when he rose again, he declared himself to be the Son of God, to have satisfied divine justice for our sins, to have vanquished death, And him that had the power of it, that is the devil. And to be Lord of quick, the living and the dead. All which he did as a public person, the head of his church, for their justification, for their quickening in grace, support against enemies, and to assure them of their resurrection from the dead at the last day. And that is why Jesus can say the final thing he says. I have the keys of death and Hades. Note that Hades here is not hell. It's another word for the grave or death when our bodies are separated from our souls. This is referring to his power and authority over death. By by rising from the dead, he conquered death. He now has the power and authority over it, over the grave. When Jesus rose from the the grave, you can imagine Satan saying, He got away, he got away, and he's got the keys. He's got the keys. And when he returns, because he says so, death and Hades will give up all the dead they have held. Jesus said, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment because he has the keys. What he opens, none can shut, and what he shuts, none can open. He opens the gates of death when he pleases, and the gates to eternal happiness or eternal misery. He is the judge of all, and from his sentence there lies no appeal. So he is what's important. His kingdom is what is important. Important. So where is your hope today? Is your hope in the Savior who's done it all, who's done all the work, he's accomplished salvation, he's conquered all his and our enemies, including sin, including the devil, and including death itself. We have everlasting hope. We have a kingdom reserved for us in the new heavens and the new earth, a kingdom that has invaded this earth already, and the church is the kingdom of Christ on earth and we're part of it or are you part of it are you part of the church you need to be part of the church you need to be part of his people you need to have the fellowship of other believers you need to come together like you are here today and worship the risen Lord that's why we worship every Sunday we're celebrating the resurrection 52 Sundays a year when we have 52 Sundays in the year he is the first and the last the living one He died, and behold, he is alive forevermore, and he has the keys of death and Hades come to him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this word that encourages us and just shows us the glory of Christ. And Lord, we pray that like John, we would fall down, that we would pay you homage and devotion, and that we would realize that We're dead if we don't have your favor. And Lord, we know that we can't earn it, we can't deserve it. But you said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He who comes to me, I will never cast out. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Lord, I pray that anyone who doesn't know you today would call upon your name and would become your follower. And Lord, may we who... Claim to be your followers, be faithful to you, not to give up, not to be discouraged, not to place our hope in human institutions or other human beings or in our bank account or our retirement account or our jobs or our status or any other thing. But let us put our hope squarely upon you, the first and the last, the living one, the one who died and who is alive forevermore and has the keys of death and Hades. And we pray this in His name. Amen.